the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Joshua. God had given the Israelites victories over the Canaanite kings that ruled in the southern region of the land, and the northern cities that had banded together under Jabin, the king of Hazor. Now with the rest of the cities left defenseless, Israel has nothing standing in their way to complete their conquest of the Promised Land. We join Pastor Will in Joshua chapter 11, verse 16. When we finished at verse 15, we, we've come to the place with, where every major city in the Promised Land is defeated. The war is almost over now for Israel. In fact, only one obstacle remains for the army to deal with, and that's the giants. And once they're defeated, the land will wholly be Israel's. So as we, we come to this end, the end of the war for the Promised Land, we are left with now two serious questions. And, and the crazy thing is, I, I, was, I mentioned this morning that I'm celebrating five years today, five years here at Calvary Chapel Orlando, and we started Genesis way back when, right? Not quite five years ago. We did a study on the Holy Spirit first, but we started in Genesis, and everything's been building to this moment, right? Everything's been building from the fall to this moment when Israel would finally get into the land and take it, and we're here. We're coming to the end of that, but again, we're left with these two serious questions because when we looked at last week, we saw the, the whole northern campaign where every Canaanite king came out to fight against Israel. They brought chariots. It was the biggest army that Israel ever faced. What we learned was, is all they did was they just put themselves in one spot for God to deal with them (laughs) and made it easy for Israel. So why did the Canaanites play right into Israel's hand? While allying together and bringing their all forces together might seem smart, it also meant leaving their more easily defended homes exposed. So that's the first question. And the second question is, with such a sweeping victory, we know the rest of the Bible story. Why doesn't Israel live in peace and safety from here on out? What happened? (laughs) With those two questions in mind, and, and as we get answers to those questions tonight, we're going to get our next lesson on how we live the victorious Christian life, because that's the theme of Joshua, how to live in the victory that Christ purchased for us on the cross, how to actually walk it out. So we're going to get our next lesson from these verses tonight. So chapter 11, we pick it up in verse 16. It says, so Joshua took all that land, the hills and all the south country, all the land of Goshen and the valley and the plain and the mountain of Israel, the valley of the same, even from the Mount Halak that goes up to Seir, even unto Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon under Mount Hermon. And all the kings he took and smote them and slew them. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all others they took in battle. So here we see all the land, it summed up the extent of Joshua's victory. Now, verse 16, when it says Joshua took all that land, the word there took, it just means to seize control. When we say that he seized control, Israel hasn't settled any of this land yet. 
They're still living in Gilgal. Gilgal's on the other side of Jordan. You come to Israel with us, we'll do a drive-by of it. We don't stop in Gilgal because it's just a big hill right now. But Gilgal's kind of like right over there it is, right there. And it's right just as you cross over Jordan, that's where they're camping out. So all these raised cities or conquered cities, they're empty right now. Nobody's there. So they haven't moved into them yet. So it's not that they're living in the land yet, but they've eliminated all resistance in these major cities. And it gives us here the the area that he took. He took all that land. It mentions the hills. And this is the hill country of central Israel. It's today where the, the West Bank is, this beautiful area. We don't you know, if you go with us, we don't get to go into that area very much because it's where the, the Palestinians live. And it's not that it's not safe to go there. It's just hard to get to sites. A lot of the sites have been trashed. So they're not kept up real well. So you don't get to see a whole lot. But that area, that, that middle area of Gilgal is the area that he conquered there. It mentions here the south country. The word the south country just means the Negev, which is the southern desert. So the central area, the hills, then the desert in the south, the Negev. That became the southern borders of Israel later on. And then it mentions all the land of Goshen. This would be the hill country between the middle plateau and then the the desert. So this is that area there, Jerusalem and some of the other places. The Judean hillside is where that is. Uh, The valley and the plain come first. The valley is this coastal plain right here. The Philistines, they live down here, but this coastal plain, Israel hasn't conquered that yet, but that, we'll get to that more when we get to Judges. Down here is that coastal plain. They conquered that. They conquered all of the plain, which is the Jordan River Valley. This is all this area here. It's the Arabah as the word used there. That's how I know the plain is the Jordan River Valley. And then the mountain of Israel. These would be the hills of Ephraim, southwest of Galilee. So we're getting further up here toward the valley of Megiddo. And then it says the valley of the same. That's the valley of Megiddo. That's up there. That's to the, this area here where all the major battles have been fought. All that land was conquered by Joshua, even from the Mount Halak. Mount Halak is a southernmost range in the promised land, mountain range, that goes up by Seir. So you're down here below. We don't have it on our map, but down here below, Edomites are down here. Mount Seir is this way. And so the Mount Halak is the southern mountain range that was the southern border of Israel. Even from Mount Halak that goes up to Seir, even unto Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, under Mount Hermon. They conquered all this area is now no resistance for Israel with the acceptance of a few small pockets. No resistance remained in these areas because all resistance has been eradicated. He took all their kings, he smote them and slew them. No kings remain in this region. So there's no armies are left, no organized resistance, nothing is left. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. We've read it in two chapters. But it took a while for all this to take place. But even though Joshua sums it up in these two chapters, the reason it took far longer is because the Canaanites did resist to the end. In verse 19, it says, There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all others they took in battle. That word made peace, or that phrase, it is a very interesting word. I almost didn't even look it up because I thought, well, they didn't make peace. They didn't didn't do that. I thought to myself, well, that's weird. Israel wasn't supposed to make peace with them. Why would God bring it up as a flaw that they didn't make peace with Israel? So I looked up the word because I was confused by that. And the word, it doesn't mean to make peace like a treaty. The word actually means to keep my end of the bargain. There was not a city that kept their end of the bargain. What does that mean? Sometimes this was used to describe making a treaty of peace. But this idea of keeping my end of the bargain, who who did they have a bargain with? 
They didn't have a bargain with Israel, so the only person that they didn't keep their bargain with was the Lord. Well, what bargain do we have with God? It's interesting. My relationship with God is a two-way street, even though it's based on His work. Isn't that true? My relationship with God, even though it's based on His finished work on the cross, it's based on Him giving me His righteousness, it's still a two-way street, isn't it? Like, if I want to ignore God, even though He's the works were finished from the foundation of the world, right? I can do that, right? If I want to reject God, even though his, the works were finished from the foundation of the world, even though the cross was always in his mind, even though he hasn't died yet, I can choose to reject him. I don't have to receive his righteousness. I don't have to receive his love. I don't have to receive his grace. I don't have to receive his forgiveness. I don't have to enter into a proving relationship with him. Jesus in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 7, he talks about those who will say that they knew him, say that they followed him, say they did all these things in his name, But what will he reply? You didn't do enough? He'll say, I never knew you. That phrase, I never knew you, means I was never in an approving relationship with you. You didn't keep your end of the bargain. What bargain do we have with God? Well, it's an interesting one, and it's not a complicated one. See, he's God, and we're his creation, right? He is the sovereign Lord of the universe, and he lovingly made us. He made us to be in fellowship with him. So my part of the bargain is to yield to him and enjoy all his, his goodness, right? To enjoy the relationship with him. So to not yield to that, to reject it, all the goodness of God, all the love of God, all that he wants to offer to me, the relationship he wants to have with me, I'm not keeping the part of the bargain I have with him as his creation. That's what he's talking about here. See, Israel wasn't supposed to make peace with them, but any nation that came to God Any nation that would have come to God, any city that would have come to God, any person, any Canaanite that would have come to God, even though they were under judgment and said, God, I want mercy. I want to experience your goodness. I want a relationship with you. I'm going to leave behind my idolatry. I want to follow you. God would not have judged them. He wouldn't have. See, even though God is the initiator, the creator, I have to do my part by responding to him. Look at John chapter one. John chapter one talks about this, this bargain we have with God. Now, God made us. He's already done his part. If he didn't do anything else but make us, give us his love, give us his grace, offer us his mercy, you know, just who he is, just being who he is and offering us a relationship. If he didn't do anything else for us, that would be more than enough, more than enough of him keeping his side of the bargain, being our creator. But he did more than that. We rejected him. We fell, rebelled against him, fell. And then he did this. And John chapter 1, verse 9. It mentions that earlier here that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. All things are made by Him. He's the Creator, okay? And that God sent a man named John to tell us about this Creator God who loves us, who was coming to us to do something for us even though we rebelled against Him. He is that light, the light of the world, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 9, John chapter 1 says, that was the true light, referring to the Word, referring to Jesus. He was the true light. And here it is, which lights every man that comes into the world. The word light there, it is not a verb, it is a participle. The way it works in the Greek language is it means that the moment every single human being is born, God begins giving them light. Jesus begins shining his light on them. And God does that throughout the entirety of our lives, whether we reject him or receive him. He shines his light. So if all ever God did was create us and be good to us, and we rejected that, he wouldn't have to do anything else. But he did more than that. He initiated again. Saw us in our helpless estate. He initiated again. He sent his son into the world to show us what he's like and then to die for us. The true light who is lighting every man the moment they're born to the day they die. God is doing his part. He is doing that initiating part. Verse 10 and 11, it shows our part of the bargain. 
my responding part. He was in the world, and the world was made by him. He was our creator, and then he ministered the gospel to us. But the world knew him not. They didn't recognize him. He came unto his own, his own people who should have recognized him, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, those who did receive him, well, guess what? To them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. That's the bargain. He created us. We have a responsibility as his creation to yield to him. We rebelled, so he sent his son. He initiated again. And now it's our job to respond to what Christ did on the cross. People say, well, I'm not going to believe in Christ unless God shows up and he does something that I can prove he's real. He's not going to do that because he already proved everything. The Bible says, but God demonstrated his love towards us. How? He appeared in the sky or you know, made some, some miracle happen, brought you the perfect spouse. No, he demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? That's how he proved it. So he's not gonna try to prove it in any other way. The ball is in our court. He has extended his hand in mercy through the cross and now we have to respond yet again. As we look here in the situation of Canaan, time and time again, the Lord had given light to the Canaanites. But instead of receive him, they rejected him time and time and time again. Israel was not supposed to make peace with Canaanites. But guess what? They did with the Hivites, the Gibeonites, right? They did with them. Guess what? They did with Rahab. And they would have with any city, any nation, any Canaanite that sought God's mercy. This clearly shows us that God's judgment of the Canaanites wasn't arbitrary. In other words, it wasn't that God just looked around and goes well, you know what? I'm going to save Israel and I'm just going to wipe these people out. I don't like these people. I like Israel. It wasn't just an eeny, meeny, miny, mo. And Canaanites, you're left out. God, his judgment was based on righteousness. His judgment was based on the fact that he had given them light for 400 years. The Bible says that he told Abraham, he said, listen, your descendants are going to go down to Egypt. They're going to be enslaved there for a long time. And then they will come out and they will dwell in this land that I'm going to give to them. And he says, why? For the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. I'm giving them 400 years to repent. And then after 400 years of a refusal to repent, God sends his people up and they instill fear into the hearts of every Canaanite. Rahab testified, we know God is with you. We know God has sent you. We heard what you did in Egypt. We heard what you did to the kings on the other side of the Jordan. We know that God has sent you to judge us. Okay, sounds like a good time to repent, right? But they don't, they don't. The Gibeonites come and they say, we know why God sent you here. We know that you're here to judge us. We know that God is dealing with us. And they seek mercy and they find it. Rahab finds it. Every single one of these cities, every single Canaanite that was killed in judgment by God, they had the same opportunity, the same opportunity. God's judgment wasn't arbitrary. God's judgment at that point was the only option left. Because when you resist God over and over and over and over again, eventually God says, fine, you want it your way? You don't want my mercy and grace? You don't want the bargain? You've got it. And so verse 20 explains, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly, and that they might have no favor, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, if you grab that verse all by itself and you rip it out of its context, before we get to the verse about keeping their end of the bargain, you can have a very dim view of God, won't you? Man, God, God's mean. The word favor means grace. He didn't want them to experience any grace. He didn't want to forgive them. He didn't want any goodness for them. He just picked them to judge them because God's mean. 
that's not it at all. They came out, we asked the question, why in the world did they come in one place where God could just wipe them all out in one spot? Well, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts. The word there, harden, it means to confirm or strengthen. This is the same word that's used when God confirmed Pharaoh's heart after he refused to listen to God repeatedly. Do you know when you look at the first few plagues and it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, it's a different word. It says, and Pharaoh made himself stubborn. Pharaoh stubbornly refused to listen to God, stubbornly refused to be open to other options, to to yield to God. He did that to himself. But there comes a place in the life of a person when the Lord says, you know what? You are fighting me so hard. If this is what you really want, you can have it. You can have it. And one of the scariest things that a human being can go through is when God takes his hand off and he goes, I'm done. I won't pester you anymore. It's one of the scariest places you can be. We read in Romans chapter one that that's not just something God does and then he says he's done with you. God does that. He gives us over to our own desires so that we get what we want and then like the prodigal son, we look around us and we go, what am I doing? What am I doing with my life? What in the world is wrong with me? I'm a fool. And we come to our senses and we return to the Lord. We come back to the bargain. It is only after repeated times of coming to our senses and going, no, I'm not going home. I'm not going back to God. That we get to a place where the Bible describes someone has a reprobate mind where they can't even conceive of God anymore. To get to that place, there are multiple times where God lets you have what you want and you get into trouble with it. You become unsatisfied. And yet you still say, I don't want the bargain. Again, I would suggest to you at that point, what else can God do? (laughs) What else will God do but judgment? God was just confirming their hearts. It was already clear, verse 19, that they would not make peace with God. They wouldn't keep their end of the bargain. So God said, fine, I've given you 400 years. I've given you numerous opportunities to repent. I have given you over to your own desires. You've seen the mess that's made of your culture. You've seen the mess that's made of your society, but you still don't want me. Fine, have it your way. And so it was of the Lord to confirm and strengthen their hearts that they would come out against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them completely and that they would have no favor, no pardon, no mercy, no grace, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. I love what the expositor's commentary says about this. It says, God hardened the Canaanites' hearts not to keep them from repenting, but to prevent them from surrendering to Israel in unrepentance. Do you hear that? That's why God did this. See, because what would have been very easy for all of them to do as they're seeing city by city go down, for somebody to raise the white flag and go, we don't want to change, but we don't want to die either. How about we work out a deal? And that's actually what will happen when we get to the beginning of the book of Judges. There's going to be little tiny pockets of resistance, no king, no cities, nothing major, little pockets of resistance, and each tribe is going to be given the responsibility to deal with that. And the tribes are going to go, we don't want to fight anymore. We got control of this area. We're done with the killing. We're done with the fighting. We don't want to lose any more men ourselves. Let's make a deal. You be our slaves. And they are ready to sign up for that. See, God wiped them out because it's not that he didn't want them repenting. He didn't want them surrendering in unrepentance and thereby corrupting Israel. God isn't after us just doing a, a detente. You know, we just go, okay, you know, time out, God. I'll stop saying nasty things about you if you just let me be. No, because that has a corrupting influence. 
The Lord wants our hearts. He wants repentance. He wants us to come into that bargain, that relationship with him. And so he confirmed their heart so that they would come out and fight. And there would be no opportunity to raise the white flag and surrender in unrepentance. So we see here, God doesn't arbitrarily pick some people for judgment, some people for blessing. God doesn't arbitrarily pick some people for heaven and some people for hell. He doesn't want any to perish. But his will is still going to get done if you stand in the way. And he will confirm your stubbornness so that his will can be done in the most efficient way, which is what happened to these Canaanites. Thinking they had the best plan to stop Israel, they never considered that God was the one using their their stubbornness to make things more efficient for Israel. They never considered that. And that's the problem with prideful rebellion against God. You never take into account that he's bigger than you. You never take into account that you can't take him. You can't beat him. You know, Jacob, he fought and he fought and he fought against God. Every opportunity God gave him to repent, he always found some way, right? Some way to make it work. Some way to get out of the mess. And then finally God said, I'm going to put you in a mess you can't, you can't get out of. He's got his brother marching in front of him. He's got Laban marching behind him. He has nowhere to run now. And so he sends his family over the river and he goes up on a hill and he's still fighting with God. He doesn't want to cross over. He doesn't want to trust the Lord. He's still trying to come up with a plan. And God says, enough is enough. And so that's when the WWE announcer comes out onto the hilltop and the Lord comes out in the spandex and he just tackles him, body slams him. Jacob's wrestling with God all night, right? Finally, the Lord says, I am done fighting you, son. And he just touches his thigh. He doesn't have to do anything. He just touches his thigh and knocks his hip out of joint. At that point, Jacob, now he can't even fight with God anymore. I don't remember which Old Testament minor prophet it is. I want to say it's, anyway, I think it's Hosea, but it tells us that with tears in his eyes, he clung to the Lord and he said, please don't leave me without blessing me. I got nothing. I don't know what to do. I got nowhere to go. The Lord turned to him and he said, what's your name? That's a weird way to respond to a plea for a blessing. <laughs> I need a blessing, God. I need something. He says, what's your name? I wonder if that's the first time Jacob contemplated how he'd lived his life. Because he says it's Jacob, heel catcher, conniver, dirty, sneaky thief, always has a way to weasel out of the trouble he gets himself into. That's who I am. And now I'm out of, out of options. And the Lord says, that's not your name anymore. You're going to be called Israel. Because now I'm going to run your life. You're going to be governed by God. You're going to be a prince of God. You're going to be someone I lead from now on because you prevailed in prayer. You came to me and you asked me, you finally humbled yourself, Jacob, and I have a blessing for you. It's a new way of living, a new relationship with me. You're going to trust me from here on out. And you know, Jacob, he wasn't always right. There were times the Bible calls him Jacob again instead of Israel because he's acting like Jacob again. But from that point forward, we see the trajectory of Jacob's life change. And when we get to the end of his life, we see a man who trusted God so fully, who knew God so fully, that he worshiped on the very thing that was the sign of his injury, of his failure, that he lost the fight with God. He worshiped on his staff, the thing he needed to walk because his hip was out of joint. And he worshiped. That's the last thing we see Jacob do before he crawls up into his bed and dies. God is so patient and merciful. Even in his judgment, He is always extending a hand of mercy. There is no one too far out of reach from His love and grace. Nothing can separate us from His love. 
All we must do is turn to Him and accept His free gift. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.